Hello and welcome to the second episode of the research podcast from Georgia State University. You can find this episode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Play. In each episode, we'll highlight interesting and innovative research happening at Georgia State. We will feature a different faculty member and a different topic each month, so you can learn more about research taking place across the university. I'm Jennifer Rainey Marquez, your host and Associate Director of Research Communications at Georgia State. My guest in this episode is Dr. Cynthia Now Cornelison, Professor in the Institute for Biomedical Sciences and the Director of the Center for Translational Immunology. Dr. Cornelison is one of the country's leading researchers in the study of infectious diseases, including sexually transmitted infections. Today, we're going to chat about her work to develop a vaccine for gonorrhea, which affects hundreds of thousands of people in the U.S. every year and is rapidly becoming resistant to virtually all available treatment. Thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. So, in the U.S., record high numbers of people are getting infected with sexually transmitted diseases, including syphilis, chlamydia, and gonorrhea, which you study. What are some of the reasons behind this STD epidemic that's happening now? You're right. Um, The incidence of all these sexually transmitted infection pathogens has increased pretty rapidly um, over a short period of time. Between 2014 and 2017, um, incidence of gonorrhea increased 67% in the United States alone. And that's similar increases are are noted in other countries as well. The increase in syphilis was was noted again in the United States in that time period to be 76% which is huge. Um, chlamydia increases are in the similar in a similar um, range. So the reasons for this are really complicated and there are lots of reasons. But one reason is that um, pretty much all populations are not using condoms as effectively or at all. Um, and condoms are really an effective measure to prevent transmission of these sexually transmitted pathogens. And when you say all populations, that means? That means gay, straight, young, old, everybody. Wow. Um, the, the numbers of um, people really effectively using condoms are way, way down. And basically the bottom line is if a person, if a couple is not worried about getting pregnant, then they tend not to use condoms, even though they are the most effective means to protect a person against transmission and or uh, acquisition of an STI pathogen. This is also complicated by the fact that um, we're no longer sort of in an AIDS crisis generation. And so um, people aren't as worried about HIV transmission not thinking about these other bacterial SDIs as much. Is that um, part of why the hypothesis is that condom use is down as we're a generation removed, people just aren't thinking about it as much? Certainly that is a hypothesis. It's not been fully proven, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there has also been a correlation, correlation, again, not proved, between the introduction of so-called PrEP, which is 
pre-exposure prophylaxis. It's a cocktail of drugs to prevent the transmission of HIV, which causes AIDS. And it's a very effective measure to prevent transmission of that virus, but it doesn't prevent the transmission of anything else. And so again, populations who think they're not at risk of HIV transmission or acquisition, then don't feel like that barrier method is necessary. And so that may lead, and again, it's a correlation, it may lead to riskier behaviors, mm-hmm. um, including less condom use. Right. Um, in addition, with the advent of drugs to uh, deal with sexual dysfunction in elderly males in particular, but also women, um, Uh, Which I meant Viagra, Viagra, for example. Um, That's enabled people to um, be sexually active longer. And again, they may not be thinking about being pregnant, getting pregnant. That's not a concern. But yet um, transmission of these STI pathogens still is quite possible. And in fact, the incidence has been on a pretty dramatic increase in the elderly as well. Wow. Let's talk a little bit about how gonorrhea affects the body. Like, I think a lot of people think, oh, you know, HIV, you know, HIV, I know that can turn into AIDS and kill you. Gonorrhea, do I really need to worry about that? Right. So in women, the infection is um, very often asymptomatic. And so women don't know they even have the infection. So that means, one, they can serve as a reservoir to spread the infection, but also it means that the infection can ascend into the upper reproductive tract. If that's the case, then the organism can get a foothold in the upper genital tract and cause inflammation, kind of a smoldering inflammation. That can lead to um, what's known as pelvic inflammatory disease, which is um, can lead to chronic pelvic pain, which is basically a lifetime of pelvic pain. It can also lead to fallopian tube scarring, which ultimately can lead to infertility. This organism, along with chlamydia, are two leading causes of infertility in young women in this country. Um, The organism, so in men, very often the infection is symptomatic. Symptomatic means um, painful urination. It means very often in men, a very obvious discharge. And so they know that something's wrong and they need to be treated. However, occasionally it can be asymptomatic in men. And again, the infection can ascend into the upper tract and cause infertility. So it's not unheard of for gonorrhea to cause infertility in men as well. It's just less common because they seek effective treatment. The organism can also escape the genital tract altogether and get into the bloodstream. If it gets into the bloodstream, it can get to the heart and it can also get to the brain and, and the meninges, the covering around the brain. In pre-antibiotic times, before we had antibiotics to treat the infection, um, those were very common manifestations of gonorrhea. Um, anymore, that hasn't been the case since antibiotics came to pass. So the organism can get to the heart and cause inflammation of the um, surrounding, the, the membranes around the heart as well as the valves and cause endocarditis. It can also cross the meninges and get into the, the fluid around the brain, replicate happily, and cause meningitis. Um, and in fact, uh, basically a sister organism of this pathogen is Neisseria meningitidis, which is a common cause of bacterial meningitis. And both organisms cause meningitis in exactly the same way. So the CDC is very concerned about gonorrhea, not just because it's infecting a lot of people, though. They're also warning that it may soon become virtually untreatable thanks to antibiotic resistance. So first, can we just talk briefly, what does antibiotic resistance mean? Sure. So 
antibiotic resistance takes place uh, in bacteria when they either mutate or change their DNA sequence um, in response or as a consequence of exposure to an antimicrobial drug. And generally it's a low concentration of an antimicrobial drug. That's basically a selective environment for a change to take place, a DNA change. Neisseria gonorrhea has evolved resistance to every antibiotic that doctors prescribe for this, to treat this infection over time. Um, and one example of how Neisseria gonorrhea becomes resistant to these drugs is that they can overproduce pumps in their, in their membrane, which enables them to just pump the drug right back out. So the drug comes in, but then they have, they overproduce these pumps that just turn the drug right back around. So that's one mechanism of, of resistance. Another very common mechanism of resistance is that they can mutate the target of the drug, whatever that target is. So the drug has to interact with a protein in the bacterium, and if the sequence of that target changes, then the drug is no longer effective. That's one of many mechanisms that this bug has to basically um, cheat us out of the drugs that we are we have developed to treat it. Um, and so that's that's in a nutshell, you know, mm -hmm. how resistance evolves. So what is the current recommended treatment for gonorrhea now? Um, <clears throat> the current recommendation is to treat with two drugs simultaneously. One is called ceftriaxone, and it's um, administered intramuscularly by a, a shot one time. The second drug is given orally, and that's called azithromycin. And the, the idea of treating with both drugs simultaneously is that um, we might be able to stave off resistance to the combination therapy. The problem is that resistance to both of those drugs has already emerged in the community, and it's actually not that rare. Um, so in other words, resistance to the individual drugs is already out there. And so um, it wasn't that big of a surprise, in fact, that some people have already failed the combination therapy. Um, so there have been treatment failures recent in recent years in actually lots of countries um, that that appropriate therapy completely failed. And then they had to, doctors basically had to go back to square one trying to find a, a drug that would treat that infection. Thankfully, that's been the case. They've been able to find an alternative drug. But on the horizon, not too far on the horizon, it appears as though we may be in a situation where we have untreatable gonorrhea again, like we did before antibiotics were developed. And why can't doctors just go back and prescribe some of these older drugs again? That works um, with some other bacteria, um, antibiotic-resistant bacteria. <laughs> the gonococcus um, is, is crafty and um, it has not given up those resistances to drugs like penicillin that we haven't used to treat this infection in decades. So when you stop using a drug, it doesn't lose the resistance, it keeps it. It hangs on to it. And so in those bacteria where the resistance basically goes back to normal or the, the set type or the wild type, um, the, the idea is that there's a fitness cost associated with changing the sequence of that target, for example. So in other words, the normal sequence works best and the mutated version doesn't work as well 
for its normal function, but now it's resistant to this drug. So as long as the drug is in the environment and is being used to treat the infection, well, it's okay to, to deal with that fitness cost, right? But as soon as the drug is removed, then the sequence in the population goes back to the wild type, which is more functional, right? The gonococca somehow has gotten away from that fitness cost. And so uh, resistance mechanisms, sequences of particular targets that um, are resistant to penicillin, even though now we've, we haven't prescribed penicillin for decades, um, that sequence is still in, in its resistance mode, in its resistance sequence. And, and that, so that's true. So if you look at the population, fully 30% of strains out there today are still resistant to penicillin, even though we haven't used penicillin in decades. Similarly for tetracycline, and even more strains are actually resistant to both. So you're working to develop a, a vaccine against gonorrhea that would hopefully eliminate this sort of treatment problem with no end that we've gotten ourselves into. Scientists have known about gonorrhea for over 100 years. Why don't we have a vaccine yet? Right. Well, <clears throat> um, <laughs> this organism has been with us for millennia, really, and is very exquisitely adapted to us. Um, the, so that means it, it's only in humans? It's only in humans. It's not found in any other animals. They're actually Neisseria-adapted strains for other animals, but they can't cross species lines any more than our strains can cross species lines. It's not found in the environment. It's only a found, found associated with humans. Um, why is, is it so hard to develop a vaccine? It, it goes back to the biology of the organism. Um, the organism is um, able to take up DNA from other bacteria in the environment, and that enables them to pick up antibiotic resistance markers readily. It also means that they're able to change their surface structure very dramatically and very quickly. So virtually everything they put on their surface is subject to what's known as high frequency phase or antigenic variation. They can either turn it on and off or they can change antigenic type very quickly at a, at a frequency of one in a hundred to one in a thousand cells. And what, let's explain what antigens are. Antigens are anything that the immune system sees. They can be proteins, they can be sugars, they can be anything. So anything the organism has on its surface it, almost everything, it varies at very high frequency. And so the organism has been referred to as a chameleon because um, it can change its surface sort of, sort of as a, at a whim almost. And so that means that when a population infects a human, one, it's presented with a dramatic array of different antigens with which to sort of cope with, um, but also eliciting an immune response against any one of those is not functional because it has the capacity to change it to something different in no time. So it's really hard for your immune system to fight it off or you could get reinfected again and you don't have any learned immune response. Exactly. So there's little to know what's known as acquired immunity, um, which is what you would want in a protect or need in a protective immune response, at least as a consequence of natural infections. So natural infections are not protective and people get infected over and over and over and over again. And that, that even increases the risk of those sequelae, like I mentioned, the infertility and the pelvic inflammatory disease and ectopic pregnancy, which is when the fallopian tubes get scarred and therefore, um, the fertilization occurs and, and the, the, um, 
the developing fetus actually develops in the um, in the fallopian tube as opposed to dropping down, and that can rupture and kill the mother. In fact, so. How is your lab, this sounds like a lot of challenges to deal with when you're coming up with a vaccine. How are you trying to work around some of these challenges? Um, Well, one thing that we can't do, which is what has happened with most vaccine development efforts, uh, one thing we can't do is to look at an immune population and say, why are they immune? And then take a lesson from that immune response and go back to the lab and sort of redevelop a vaccine that will recapitulate that. We can't do that because the natural infection doesn't elicit protective immunity. So that's um, that's a strike against sort of the whole field, basically. So most vaccines, you could sort of look at how the body has successfully fought it off and then work backwards. Yes. But you can't do that. Exactly. So what we've opted to try to do is to focus on um, conserved transporters that enable the organism to take in necessary nutrients. We think that if we can basically block that process of nutrient uptake, that we can essentially starve and kill them. So when you say transporters, what does that mean exactly? That means uh, a protein, almost a pump, but it's going on the towards the inside as opposed to the outside. Like I mentioned, the antibiotic pumps that pump drugs out, these things bring nutrients in. Okay. And they're on the surface of the bacteria and they interact with um, host proteins in order for the bacterium to bring in necessary nutrients. And the nutrients that we're specifically focused on uh, are metals, um, namely iron and zinc currently. Um, We focus on those because all bacteria need those metals for their basic metabolism. And they, um, because they have to have them, if they're prevented from access, then they can't grow. And we know that's both true in the host and we know that's true in the laboratory. Um, Actually, human hosts have sort of gotten wise to this need as well and have developed a strategy known as nutritional immunity. Basically, they produce these proteins that hide these metals away from bacterial invaders. And in so doing, prevent many bacterial infections. High free iron and free zinc in a host is always, uh, makes a person more susceptible to a bacterial infection. Hmm. But if they're sequestered appropriately by proteins like transferrin and calprotectin, then uh, bacterial invaders are inhibited from growing. Well, the Neisseria- they can't get to the can't get proteins to, those metals. That, or to the metals that they need to grow. Exactly. And so if they can't get the metals, then they can't do their metabolism and they just, they just can't grow. The Neisseria have, again, evolved with us for so long They recognize our, and specifically human, transferrin, and specifically human calprotectin. They have these transporters on their cell surface that specifically recognize those human proteins that have metals bound to them, and they can extract the iron and bring it on into the cell. And so because this is a necessary process and they're on the surface and they have to be deployed in order for the bacteria to grow, we think those might be good targets for immune um, therapy or not so much therapy, but prevention. So they're, they're basically going up to these proteins that are hiding the metals and just sucking them right out yep. and preventing that entire defense from working. Yep. So do the, 
do these um, receptor targets or whatever is on the the surface of the bacteria that allows them to do this, did those change super frequently? Like you were talking about these other antigens change super frequently? Right. Uh, Some of the iron transporters do, and those aren't the focus of our um, research efforts for the most part. Uh, What we are focused on more so are those that are produced by all strains that are um, produced under all conditions, at least low metal conditions, and the inside of the host is a low metal condition, um, and those that are not subject to high frequency phase or antigenic variation. And two of those that I already mentioned are transferrin and calprotectin. Um, We're focused on those two transporters as potential vaccine targets for that very reason. So I know you recently received a large grant, more than $9 million from the National Institutes of Health to fund this work and sort of progress down towards a vaccine. How much or what still needs to be done before we actually have a vaccine available? There's a lot that still has to be done. Um, NIH has committed a lot of money to not only developing a gonorrhea vaccine, but also uh, a chlamydia vaccine and a syphilis vaccine for the reasons that we talked about at the beginning of this. Um, The gonococcus, because of its antibiotic resistance, is now considered an urgent threat pathogen. And so the NIH is really committed to um, making this vaccine development really um, a big push, a, a high priority. Um, but there's still a lot to determine or to, to, there's a lot to learn and a lot to establish before we can move into humans, obviously. We have to identify the right protein targets. We don't, I just gave you the rationale for why we're focusing on a couple of them, but we don't know whether an immune response against those proteins will be protective. We just don't know that yet. Um, We don't know how to deliver the vaccine. There are lots of different routes that they could be delivered. We haven't tested that that yet. We also don't know what adjuvant will spur the right type of immunity, again, to be protective. And what's an adjuvant? An adjuvant is something that's added to a vaccine cocktail or formulation that will goose an immune response. But they also are... um, geared towards skewing a particular type of immune response. And as I've already indicated, because we don't know what kind of an immune response is protective, so-called we don't know what the correlates of protection are, we don't know which type of immune response we need, and therefore we don't know what adjuvants we need. So we're still at the very beginning stages of all of that. Um, Moreover, we don't know um, what populations should be targeted for vaccination. Um, and we would want to par- target popu- populations that would have the biggest impact on disease spread. Um, and we would also want to protect um, the largest number of pop- people um, and also fertility of people. So we don't, we don't know who would be target- targeted for vaccination. Those would all have to be decided. Um, and then ultimately, these vaccine formulations would have to be put into humans. And tested in and like tested a in trials. Exactly. So the aspects that I mentioned up to the human trials are all aspects of the funding that we just got from NIH. That is, which antigens, which vaccine routes, which adjuvants, uh, all tested in animal models, 
and, and also this, uh, these questions about what populations might be the best ones to target for our biggest impact. Those are all aspects of this, of this funding. In terms of a timeline, um, there was, or there is, uh, a meningococcal vaccine that was deployed relatively recently against what's known as group B meninge, um, and it, again, causes bacterial meningitis. It was developed in a very similar way to what I just um, described, from antigen discovery to actually being put into people as a licensed vaccine took about 20 years. Wow. But... They also had a head start on us because they had correlates of protection to protect against meningococcal disease because meningococcal disease is protective. So they knew what they were looking for in terms of an outcome. Meaning they could do the working backwards part that we talked about. Yes. And and that still took 20 years. So I think we're probably on the outside of 20 years until this really actually gets put into people. Well, given what you said earlier, it sounds like it cannot happen fast enough. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your work. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. It's been my pleasure as well. Um, This has been the research podcast from Georgia State University featuring Dr. Cynthia Cornelison, professor in the Institute for Biomedical Sciences and the director of the Center for Translational Immunology. For more conversations about research taking place across Georgia State, look for the research podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes.